Okay, this is the forum. Uh, my name is Evan Rose. Uh, I'm going to introduce our speaker today, um, Steve Tobin, uh, long-term member of our church. Um, he's got a little uh, bio in here. <laughs> uh, basically, he's, uh, he works at the laboratory in nonproliferation. Uh, he studied uh, fusion energy in, uh, at university, um, and he's had a great deal of interest now in uh, uh, climate change and, and global warming. Uh, so he's going to give you the benefit of his research in this area. Um, and uh, I was talking with him earlier. He intends to devote s uh, some more of his time to uh, looking into this area as his uh, children transition from uh, being soccer players and uh, he gets a little more free time. Well, from, from me coaching them. <laughs> it's, they're, they're continuing in soccer. So. Ah, okay. Um, <laughs> One thing I'd, I'd like to do is just call your attention to why this kind of talk is very relevant to us as Unitarian Universalists. In um, 2006, uh, the UUA at their General Assembly adopted a statement of conscience on the threat of global warming and climate change. So that was 11 years ago. And um, they had a, you can find this on the web, uh, they had a whole bunch of things involved with this resolution you know, that also was a call to action, things that we as individuals, as uh, a denomination, and as a nation should be doing. And I just want to call your attention to two things, and then I'll let Steve, Steve talk. Um, one was to determine your personal energy consumption and pledge to reduce use of energy and carbon emissions from 2006 to 2010 by 20%. Okay, how many of you have done that? <laughs> Excellent. You might have. Um, the other one that caught my eye was a call on uh, the nation um, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 10% below current levels by 2015, 20% by 2020, and 60% by 2030. Uh, how many people here think we're on that path? Okay. So... <laughs> I'll give, I'll give the, uh, the talk over to Steve. Steve? Okay. Thank, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Okay. okay. So um, please do interrupt me with any questions. It's more of a discussion than a lecture. As uh, Evan mentioned, my background is in fusion energy and nonproliferation, so I'm not a specialist in climate issues, but it's always been an interest. And so 30 years ago when I was looking what to do with my life and what, in particular what to uh, study in graduate school, at that time I remember thinking seriously about global warming type issues. Um, and subsequently I've learned that many people know of James Hansen, but it was 30 years ago this year that he testified before the U.S. Congress and said, the science is sound enough, we really need to begin affecting public policy. And as we know, that's still trying, the, the key effort is trying to affect public policies around these issues. Um, so grappling was the key word I came up with. It, it, I, uh, to, to, to add on to what Evan said, I, I'm an employee at the laboratory, but I've taken a year of entrepreneurial leave, which gave me the opportunity when I had a break in uh, what I was working on to just take a week and said, I'm, I've always been wanting to put time in this issue. I'm taking this week, and just only thing I'm going to do is answer my own questions on this topic. And basically, that's when I made this talk. Um, so I've been grappling with climate change for a long time, and this is some organized thoughts around it. The, the, the talk is really just 10 slides on climate change and then like 15 slides on uh, what we should be doing. So this is the slide that basically 
summarizes the, the key fundamental issue. We have stored geological carbon in the form of oil, natural gas, and coal. And for several hundred years now, we've been burning a great deal of it. That carbon is going into the atmosphere. It's basically creating an insulating blanket, and it's all, as well as going into plants and the ocean. This next slide is the exact same data, just put it a little differently. You have the sources of the carbon and the sinks. And there, 44% of it's going into the atmosphere, and that is basically making a, a, an insulating layer stronger. So we're better at insulating. The, the, the second part I wanted, the, the, the bottom picture I wanted to emphasize, the oceans. You could look at the oceans right now, that they're, they're helping us a lot here. They're absorbing 26% of that carbon, so we're not warming as quickly, but there are two prices being paid for that. One is we're acidifying the oceans, and we know, we know that of the, the coral reefs bleaching. But the other side of that is that, right, let's say we get our act together. Let's say we stop burning fossil fuels. The oceans are going to switch from the right-hand side of this slide to the left-hand side. They're going to now become a source of carbon dioxide as they start to outgas the carbon that they've been absorbing all these years. This slide I put in here just to say, well, if, we're talking, if I'm going to talk so much about carbon dioxide, uh, what's normal? And so here's uh, a slide basically taking us back to the Viking days, showing the point, and I was thinking of Galen when I did that, uh, going, getting a little no as much Nordic as I can get in here, I'll get in here. Um, but then we were very, very stable carbon up until, and I like that this graph put, 1769, that was the turning point year. <laughs> but for, since the late 1700s, the carbon dioxide has been going up, and particularly rapidly. During my lifetime, the vast majority of the human-emitted carbon has taken place during my lifetime. So one of the questions, okay, so we throw, put it up in the air, and I remember listening to different people give talks, and they would often throw out the numbers, well, it stays up there for hundreds of years, or it stays up there for thousands of years. And so I did a little looking, well, which is it? Well, it's both. <laughs> it's very different time scales. So from on the two graphs on the right here, you see the portion of atmospheric carbon, carbon dioxide and how long it stays in once emitted. And you see, I was actually a little bit encouraged by the top graph, that roughly, there's a fair amount of error bars, within 100 years, a little bit less, roughly about half of it comes out. But you see also at 300 years, we're somewhere in the 20 to 30 range percent of it still being in the air. And if you trace it out, as far as we understand, it's 10,000 years, there's still evidence of it. So even if we totally stopped emitting carbon now, for thousands of years, we wouldn't be at the, two, the 280 parts per million that we are. We'd be at 300 or something above, which seems pretty small given we're at 400 parts per million now. But all the same, we've changed our climate for quite a long time. In, in trying to wrap my head around the timing of climate change, um, this graph really is one that sort of made me, st I stared at it for a while, and it really put a number of things into context. Two things about it were very concerning. Uh, so we basically have on the vertical axis carbon dioxide emission, and on the horizontal, the decades. And to the left of the 2015 line, nothing radical there. That's just the data, how much have we been emitting. And to the right, you see, the, I'd like to focus on the black line. The black line is what many climate modelers would put in their models. Because if they're, the, there's so much complexity to knowing how our climate will go, how temperature will go, you need complex models to put that all together. And so they have to think, well, we know the past, but what, the future could go many different ways. And so this seems like a plausible path. Well, plausible path, it's a path they chose to keep us below two degrees centigrade with what they would say is a 66% probability. And that curve, two aspects of it concern me greatly. <laughs> 
One is, on the early part of it, you see the approximate emission pledges. That's what, when all the countries of the world got together in Paris and said, okay, what are you willing to do to cut your emissions? What are you willing to do? So everyone said, we're going to cut our emissions a certain amount. Those pledges, when you add them all up, is not a cut. <laughs> if you look at 2030, which is what they projected out to, the world in aggregate says, we're going to keep emitting more. Okay, so drastically different from the black curve, which says, we really need to be on a downward slope. Okay, that was one thing that was concerning. The other thing that was very concerning to me that you'll start to see these things called realized negative emissions. That we're going to start pulling carbon dioxide out of the air soon. In 13 years is when you first start to see things get on the order of a gigaton of pulling out. And I rushed over one of my early slides. I wanted to emphasize the point, what is a gigaton? <laughs> Often when we talk about scientific things and scales of this, the units cease to be meaningful. I have no feeling for what a gigaton is. So I did a little calculation on my own to try to make it real. I just started, said, well, a gigaton, what does nature do with carbon dioxide naturally? Give it enough time, and one of the common ways carbon dioxide is dealt with in the natural cycle, pull it out and make limestone. Well, what does a gigaton of carbon dioxide emitted look like in limestone? And it turns out to be almost a perfect cube, one kilometer on an edge of limestone. We emit that as a planet every 10 to 11 days. So every 10 to 11 days at our current rate, we, if we were to pull out at the same rate we're putting it in, we'd be doing a cube of limestone a kilometer on a side. So that, that's one of the things I think that's lost when we talk about these issues is the, 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 the essence of the masses we're talking about. It's a huge amount of mass. Okay. Also on the last slide, that was a projection, that black curve of what... Um, what would it take to stay below 2 degrees C? And then you have to ask the question, well, why 2 degrees C? What's so magical about that? And that's largely a politically decided upon number. Uh, scientists have some definite input into that, but it's not like there's some magical threshold that we understand at this point, that yes, things are going to get worse at 2 degrees C. It might be not high enough a limit. It might be too high. Depends what you're willing to accept for changing of our climate. Um, but I throw this slide up here only because this is... Uh, the last ice age, we went the opposite direction. We weren't warming, we were cooling. Well, how much temperature change did it take to bring ice down to the Ohio Valley to pretty well eliminate Canada from habitability and take that Scandinavia out of the picture as well as a large part of Russia? That was somewhere in the order of a 5 to 10 degree change. Um, so 2 degrees the other way, 5 to 10 this way, we see 5 to 10 doing a, a very massive change. It gets at a key point that I think is a problem when we talk about climate change. People say, one degree change? That's nothing. Every day it changes 10 degrees. And there's a big difference between daily fluctuations and when you start to fool around with the average. This ice coming down and taking out Canada was when, we, when the average changed by 5 to 10 degrees. Two degrees is a pretty substantial fraction of that. So I'm trying to give plausibility to the idea that it would, uh, make, could make a big difference. This is a slide of the data to show how is the temperature. When I say 5 to 10 degrees... Ignore the top graphs. I've only put it up there for the bottom blue one. That is the temperature change over the past four or five ice ages. And you see that's where the 10 degrees I mentioned. Those are sort of the swings in that. And just last night we were talking to Mukundan, and he sent me a talk of our, our former Secretary of Energy, uh, Chu. And in his talk I put a quote from what Chu had said, that during the last interglacial, the planet was on average one degree centigrade higher than we are right now. And that, along with that, was a six to nine meter higher sea. So this is another way to say one degree is a lot. Now, when he said one degree higher, we've already gone one degree above 
a bit more than one degree above where we were when we started emitting a lot of carbon. One degree more is where the seas are six to nine meters higher. Okay, this is a slide to get at the point. I claimed earlier that, you know, one gigaton of carbon, cube, limestone, a lot of mass. Um, these are two ways that people, this gets at two of the methods people have talked about pulling carbon out of the air. One is there have been demonstration plants of prototypes of actually taking the carbon dioxide out of the air, processing it, and storing it. There's cost estimates from that. And the cost estimates at $600 to $1,000 per metric, per metric ton. And so at the beginning of the talk, I said how many metric tons are we emitting now. So it's a very easy calculation to say, what would it cost to just remove carbon at the rate we're putting it in right now? And that number is basically $20 trillion. And so after I saw that number, oh, okay, right, I, I looked up what the U.S. economy is. I mean, the, the world economy. And it's about $80 trillion. So you're talking about 25% of the planet's whole economy it would take to, to use that mecha mechanism to pull out carbon dioxide. Gavin? So if you pull out the carbon dioxide, you're also making carbon dioxide for the energy you're, well, you, you, yeah, you're clearly going to have to pull out, you're going to have to use less energy than you, well, ideally you'll use no, no carbon in getting your energy sources. I mean, the whole last half of this talk is talking about how you can generate our energy without emitting any carbon dioxide. But yeah, you would have a problem if you used our current power sources to pull out carbon dioxide. Um, so, and okay, so, so you could stop back and say, hey, that's a really hard problem. You have 400 parts per million in the air. Can we do it easier? Is there easier ways to get carbon out of the air? And you say, well, gee, we already have a carbon cycle. We have plants. They're constantly pulling it out. Maybe we could do this a smarter way. So the second part, is, second black bullet is saying, well, one of the other plans is let's grow all kinds of crops. They naturally pull the carbon dioxide out. We can then take the cops. Now that the carbon's been concentrated, let's pull it all together and we could actually burn it, generate some energy, and pull out the carbon. And that sounds good and probably is more cost effective, but the scale of crops you need is mind boggling. So this is quoting Kevin Anderson in a science article of last year. One to two times the size of India, all the crops in India, it would take to pull out enough to meet those, the magnitude of the carbon removal that was in those earlier models. This is, we need to be removing that much in about 20 to 30 years when the world population is at 10 billion. And every country in the world is continually using more energy than they do today. So we're, it's great that we're moving the poor out of poverty and stuff like that, but from an energy perspective, none of this adds up. We, in the U.S., we've been taking corn and generating a little bit of ethanol. And that started to jack up the price in the corn markets. What is it going to do when you start to dedicate so much crops to managing carbon, forget alone feeding the planet? So I'm trying, it just doesn't add up. <laughs> and so, and from an ethical standpoint, what are we doing for future generations? What are we handing them as a problem if we expect them to do negative emissions? Okay, and then this is a, a quick slide. Not that I'm advocating it for, it's a bit of an aside, but I started thinking, well, $20 trillion, there's no way we're going to do it. Are there any other options? And there's a whole list of geoengineering ideas. We're already geoengineering. The fact that we're taking carbon and throwing it up in the air, that's humans engineering the climate. We're doing it. Are there other ways we can engineer the climate that might happen? And this one I'm not advocating, but because it was so cheap, I could see it happening. So volcanoes, we already know, when you look at the temperature of the planet, every time there's a big volcano, the temperature drops for a few years. That's the volcano throwing sulfur high up in the atmosphere. That keeps the radiation from the sun. It reflects a fair amount of it, enough to lower the temperature of the planet. So can we do that as humans? Could we have a, a fleet of 
planes that constantly do that. And so there's an article in Science this year that basically says, yeah, for 6,700 flights, you can throw carbon up in the high atmosphere, I mean, um, sulfur high up in the atmosphere, and cool the planet about a degree. So the staggering thing about this for me, though, was it's a $20 billion a year price tag. So you can sort of see that many countries could afford that. Uh, and so what will happen if one country decides they want to do it and others don't like it? Or you could see a positive that this buys us many decades of staying below 2 degrees C because this could be turned on pretty quick. Um, so I throw it out there only because of trying to understand the situation, not advocating for it, but I see it as fairly pro probable. If we do hope to minimize the damage of temperature rise, we may cause other problems. <laughs> so, but it's, it's out there as far as understanding the options. Okay, that's where... I sort of take a big break in the talk. And up to this point, we've convinced you we have a serious problem, and the time scale of it is pretty daunting. Um, what can we do about it? So now's the, on, on to that. So here I list some of the primary options. If we do say, okay, as a, as a world, we're going to get off fossil fuels, what are those options? And so here I list some of them. I'll quickly go through them. But you'll notice to the right of each one, I put watts per meter squared. <laughs> and that, that's done because... One of the key things you come to a realization if we're going to get off fossil fuels is you need a fair amount of meters squared. Because one of the beauties of fossil fuels is they're very energy in a small volume, and we can easily transport around the planet. So wind and photovoltaics are very common. There's pictures of them. Uh, concentrated solar is not as well known. So that's basically where you'd have a lot of mirrors, particularly in a desert area. You'd reflect them all on a surface, and you'd create a molten salt. That has the advantage that solar could be generating power into the night from that molten salt. Um, nuclear is very well understood. Uh, biomass, um, also gathering up crops, burning them. Um, tidal, not too well, uh, not too much exploitation, but potential. Geothermal and hydro I made black because they're great if you got them and they're pretty well exploited to the extent you can economically. And so there isn't really a source I'd look to for the future increase. Um, so. One thing when you look at this whole list, except for nuclear, all other sources need a fair amount of land, land area. And so that's a key theme on some of the up, upcoming slides. Here's my one real positive slide in the whole talk. This is one that really made me feel good when I started looking at it. It actually shocked me a bit. I'd heard solar and wind prices were coming down. But if you look at, this is um, uh, unsubsidized, levelized cost of energy. So this is from Lazards. This version 10, they've been doing this for a long time. Um, they're a financial and analyst firm. You often see the same source. In Dr. Chu's talk last night, he was quoting the same source. So it's very well respectable. These are the lifetime costs for all these different sources. And the first thing that strikes out, the top three things listed, wind, solar, and gas, they're basically all in the same ballpark. They are your cheapest sources. That was quite shocking to me because I grew up with coal being the rock-solid cheap. And so coal is noticeably in the middle range. This is for all Donald Trump will say, this is what's killing coal. This is nothing he's going to undo. Coal is being killed by this, particularly natural gas. Uh, if you don't want to go renewable for some of the reasons I'll get to, gas kills coal. Um, it was a bit surprising for me, particularly in Los Alamos, and I, I didn't realize how expensive nuclear was. I remember about two years ago I heard of a nuclear power plant closing in Nebraska, and they'd already done all their upgrades, so the expensive stuff was done. And I was like, you're closing a nuclear plant that's just operating costs? And it comes down to this. Nuclear is just not cheap for all the too cheap to meter hopes. Um, and then solar towers that I mentioned are not that cheap either. Um, so 
But there's a couple of these numbers sound great for wind and solar, but there's a couple of things hidden behind it clearly. One of the things I want to emphasize, there's no management of intermittency. Wind's not blowing, you're not going to get power. And there's not talk of how do you transport it to the market. Gas is already transporting it to the market. We already have an infrastructure built in, so that's built into this cost that the gas is getting to the places that are using it. Uh, but also in this, there's no cost-benefit given for not emitting carbon dioxide. Okay. Now, this slide uh, looks a little bit crowded, but let me slowly go through it. It's, the, the axes are pretty simple. It's just population density on the horizontal axis. And then on the vertical axis, energy use per person per day. So this kind of takes the whole world problem, puts it on a graph, and then what David McKay has done here, he's put across those lines what different energy options need in terms of uh, surface area, watts per meter squared coming back to. And so just to look at it a bit, to just process the data, you got the United States, we're generally using 2,500 kilowatt hours per person per day. Then you have Europe, they're kind of, most of Europe is grouped at about half the energy of the U.S. at one, 125 kilowatt hours per person per day. But the Europeans are in much worse shape than the United States, many of them. They're over here at much higher population density. So to, to put this together, the United States right here, if we wanted to, if we grew plants everywhere and used all those plants to generate energy, we could power our whole country. Now, that's probably not desirable, and it puts crops in perspective. They're not the highest energy density. At 0.5 watts per meter squared, you don't probably want to power much on that. Okay, but then it puts into perspective, it can move up. Wind is 2.5. So we in the United States, if we were, we're a little bit below 0.5, but let's assume 0.5 for an easy calculation, we could use one-fifth of our country wind would power our whole country. Okay, that's not negligible, <laughs> one-fifth of your country. Uh, but it puts wind things in perspective. And when they've done studies on wind usage in the United States, wind capacity to generate, we could make two to three times the energy we use from wind. Um, and then, but it, you also see the desirableness of solar. Solar, I mean, here in the southwest, we're probably up around this level, 10 watts per meter squared, um, looking fairly promising. But you also see where other countries are in some bad shape. Like if South Korea did 100% of their country in wind, they wouldn't generate enough. Uh, and if Singapore or Hong Kong have to generate their own energy source, their only choice is nuclear. Right? But this brings up the other issue is that how much can you cooperate with your neighbors? Can you start to import your energy? Um, okay. So here's the situation for the United States when it comes to wind power. That's the, the data from the National Renewable Energy Lab, thing that jumps out. Great Plains are awesome. <laughs> okay, so, and, and this is, to emphasize this, this is a color scale of wind speed. Wind speed, when you're talking about um, wind energy, goes as the velocity of the wind squared. So this is, the geography of this is even more emphasized. You really want to put it in desirable places. And what's beautiful also about wind is that you can generally keep doing what you're currently doing with the land, right? There's a lot of farm and cattle land. You just added a whole second level of income to the people that own that land. So there's a very much of a win-win where you can see this taking off because it's cheap and there's a lot of it. <laughs> but you've got to get it to where you need it. And so that's what I get into briefly here in the next slide. But before going on to transporting it, here's the same picture for solar. So as we know, we're very blessed in the southwest. But compared to the way, what it's also encouraging is you can see the whole, the whole south is not that far off, like 25% less than we are, which is not horrible. So you could see solar taking over in, in more areas, but solar has the, it's more energy per meter squared, but it also totally uses the land you have. You can't grow crops underneath 
uh, or cattle very well under a solar farm. So. But you can park cars. You could do it in many places. And that's one of the things, like rooftop solar versus industrial solar. Anywhere you can do it is great, but just imagine the cheapest way is what you see there on the left. It's about twice as more expensive to put it into small localized area. So I'm not against those at all, and definitely do it where you can. But in the end, money matters <laughs> to get this done. And so I'd hope as a, if we were to think uh, as a nation, we would, in a, if I could be dictator, maybe is a better way to put it, <laughs> I would give it the most cost-effective way of, of getting us off fossil fuels. So reflecting on these last two sides, one of the key points is you need a fair amount of energy, a fair amount of land area. And so I quantify it. I, in my two S, oh, I, I kind of skipped over two things. Along the side of these two slides, I just sort of made it for myself. Uh, let's generate one-third of the U.S. energy from wind. We would need 5% of the U.S. area. This one I said, well, let's generate what's left from solar, and you need another 2.5. So you put those two together, and you need 7.5% of the U.S. if we go just wind and solar. Okay, that's just me making up numbers, but it's going to be something in the 5% range, to 7.5, depending on how much wind, depending on how much solar you do. Um, that means all of Texas, if we were to be 7.5%. And there's all kinds of jokes we can make, no better use of Texas. It also could be double, it could be double New Mexico or five Ohios, but it's a fair amount of area, and we're blessed that we could do it, because as they were saying, David McKay, looking at the UK's position, it's much harder. They're in a much worse shape. Um, okay, but now I want to take a second to go towards what I brushed over pretty quickly, intermittency. So there's a cost to that. You've got to deal with it. I mean, Germany and places that are going to higher levels of wind, uh, there, you have to come up with a plan. So here, I, what I've graphed here is because I have it for, in, once again, David McKay's sources. Uh, what does Ireland look like if you look at all the wind in Ireland? And this is it for one full year in the top graph, and he keeps zooming in, zooming in. I want to focus on the last month, February, March. So you look at that and you think, man, that's, you can't run a grid like that. <laughs> it's going up and down and up and down. Um, one of the key things to make this better, though, is, as you saw, that's, Ireland is the size of Indiana. And so when you go back to the wind map here, puts Indiana in perspective. When it's windy in Texas, the Dakotas are decoupled from that. So if you're willing to make a grid over a larger scale, that intermittency gets significantly reduced. Then fold into that if you add solar to your mix. The solar and the wind are different. So what you would get rather than have, if you did choose to go to a large interconnected grid, yes, you would have variability. The demand for the electricity is also variable. But you wouldn't be hitting the zeros near as much, almost never, and you, your intermittency would all, so it'd all be shifted up. You'd have a conglomerate of what nature gives you, but it would be much, above, much more above zero. So that's one highly desirable thing would be to interconnect the grid. So what is our grid right now? And so the earlier Texas comment kind of fits in as well. All the Western states and Canada get along great, Connecting your grids up with someone doesn't mean you really connect up your power systems. Most of our power system is done locally. Taos has its own cooperative. We have uh, our local thing. When I was in, I grew up in Cincinnati, so Cincinnati had an area. That's part of the problem here for what I'm advocating. So we do things very locally, but everybody pretty well can see that, hey, my power plant's going to go down. I really could use help from local grids. So that's why they have these grids. Um, and it's just funny that Texas... <laughs> When the rest of the world, the East and the Canadians, these, they could get together in the West and the Canadians, but Texas had to be separate. Um, but if we were to implement a lot of what I'm saying, it would be very, very helpful to do a largest grid you could possibly make. Everybody wins from doing that if you're going to go renewable. 
So how would you make a grid that size? And so this is one of the other things when I started researching that surprised me, that kind of from early physics days, you always heard about AC beating DC, that AC alternating current being better. But when it comes to transmitting energy cheaply over large distances, high voltage DC is way more efficient. So the key number that struck me is a 3% loss in energy for 1,000 kilometers where the comparable AC is about 7%. We have very little of this technology in the United States. Actually, where we do have it is where we connect between grids because the grids fluctuate at different, different frequencies. But high-voltage DC naturally couples between much easier. High-voltage DC becomes cheaper when you get over distances of 400 miles-ish. Um, so if you're going to connect up the wind and the solar of the country, you would be well over that distance. So you'd want to go for a good high-voltage DC. And if we could, more research, you would be go to superconductors, but they're not there yet. But another thing that surprised me is how old high-voltage DC is. John F. Kennedy paid, uh, started a project to connect the power coming from the Columbia River up on the Washington, Oregon, Washington and Oregon uh, border all the way to Los Angeles, well over 1,000 kilometers. And that was done in the 60s. And so this, is, this technology is quite old. It's only gotten better, um, so it's quite mature. And then to the right here is sort of given another benefit of high-voltage DC is it take for the same amount of power transmitted, it takes up much less area. So you're seeing comparable hardware to the left to hardware to the right for transmitting power. China has more of this than we do. China's been installing a lot of this lately. Uh, Europe has noticeably more. And so... I've, in, in talking to Ger uh, in reading things about Germany and other places that are trying to use more wind and solar where you want to connect things up, they've had a very hard time putting in transmission grids. Um, and when I, there's a, senator, a state senator I was talking to recently, and he was saying, yeah, down in southern New Mexico where we have a lot of wind, they were saying, yeah, we have a very hard time getting transmission lines. Nobody wants transmission lines. So just to throw out a very simplistic idea, Eisenhower was able to get the interstate highway system through the country, largely on this helps our national security. But could we piggyback on that? It connects up all our population districts. We have that intermediate area. And so in my simplistic, admittedly very simplistic mind, I see these lines going down the middle of it. It's already federal land. <laughs> so um, I don't know if we could go that way. It would be awesome if we could bury things underground <laughs> to make it much more palatable. But some way for this getting off fossil fuels, transmitting energy around is vital. Um, then, but then another part of the problem, part of the solution would be storage. So the places where um, in Europe there's a number of situations like the way the, 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 the French will make too much nuclear energy, they'll send it to the Swedes, the, the Swedes and they'll pump it uphill behind their hydro dams. And so there's some synergy there. And in the Nordic countries, there's some synergy with their hydro. The U.S., we just don't have much. And so here it's, uh, in looking it up, we have 0.7% of our energy is in the form of storable pumped hydro. Actually, I rushed there a bit. Right now, for energy storage, the only thing that's at industrial scale is what's called pumped hydro. And so pumped hydro is really, as you already have a dam, it has water behind it. If you have too much energy, just have some very efficient pumps, pump water uphill. So that's what, that is the state of the art. It's like over 95% of the storage now. Um, and so we don't have much of it, but um, are there other things that might help us in the storage area? And... This is where I bring up electric cars. Now, electric cars might not, I mean, right now they're catching on, and the current tax bill could be a real detriment to that. They're taking away some of the benefits. But it was interesting to look at what the storage capacity is of an electric car. So I have the Chevy Bolt up there that Galen Gisler has out in the parking lot. Um, and it's 60 kilowatt hours. To put that in context, that's double what the average household uses. 
So if you get two Chevy Bolts, there's four days of storage. And so is there, can that become a big part of the solution, that we would start to, just a part of our transportation structure, have four days or more? These are just the electric car storage has been going up very quickly. The cost of uh, lithium-ion batteries, I quote there, has gone from $1,000 a kilowatt hour to 227 in the past seven years. And so if we start to build in storage into our transportation system, can that now become the solution for the intermittency or a big part of the solution? So if you imagine here, I put it up here again, one month of intermittency in Ireland. Let's imagine that we had transition to electric cars. When you have too much wind, you charge your cars. When you have too little, you start to pull back from them. Or more... You, or you just power you. So there are ways, it gives you the flexibility to start to manage the intermittency. So that's sort of my concluding point. Uh, the first part of the talk was saying we really need to make a change. <laughs> we really needed to make a change a long time ago. Uh, the, the fortunate news is finally the economics are there. The, the costs have come down on significant technologies drastically in the past seven years. And the negative emissions that were basically Will, willing to future generations is really an excessive burden. It's really, uh, from an ethical standpoint, it just feels the, clearly the wrong thing to do. Uh, I focused greatly on wind and solar. It's not that I'm anti the other things. It was really just driven by cost, cost and public acceptability. Um, I've worked in the nuclear area for a while, and it just keeps struggling with public acceptability uh, and cost now. So uh, personally, anything to get off fossil fuels. Uh, but... Um, I see wind and solar as, as the real promising areas, particularly for the United States. Um, a very large interconnected grid would be a key part to the, the solution I'm suggesting, as well as electric cars. And another, going to renewables, I could see being, from this is more U.S.-centric thing, is where a lot of the money going to the world, in the world around oil is not of the best outcome for the planet. And so having a renewable energy uh, future also has some national security uh, benefits. Um, there is an odd thing I was thinking about this as someone who's in nuclear nonproliferation is there's a weird perverse thing and also realizing how the U.S. is very lucky. You're very lucky if you have a lot of land and so we have a lot of land. You're also very lucky with climate change if you can move north-south and so we're lucky there too. But you start thinking of small countries that can't move, small countries at low altitude they can't move. Also small countries and you don't get along with your neighbors, you're going to have a hard time integrating grids with them which is a very ironic situation because that's going to push you to nuclear. So those countries that don't get along with their neighbors have a stronger incentive to go nuclear, which is, to me, a, a very not an incentive we would like to have in a system. You'd, you hopefully could breed peace if people have to start to depend on each other for their electrical grid. Uh, could have a positive thing long term, but you might, could see people not setting up. Like, will South Korea, who definitely, definitely needs help, be willing to depend on China for their energy? So that's their decision. So that's really the end, the end of the talk. I really hope to, for some discussion. Anyone? Uh, first of all, I am not a scientist. Well, I've been interested in this for some time, and I'm reading two books that interest me a lot. That I read out recently is Drawdown. I'm sure you know that one. I actually don't. You don't? The most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming, edited by Paul Hawken. What he did was to get a hundred scientists and other knowledgeable people together to search for ways that are going to draw down the bad stuff. And they came up with a hundred different solutions. 
80 of which are detailed in this book. Uh, and they're clustered in, in energy and transportation and so on and so on. Are, are there any major, major things I missed in this? What would be the major things that I did miss? Because I assume I surely did. Well, l- l- let me continue. Sure. Um, and so you can go through and, and look at all these solutions, and it, it tells you, it estimates, and there's do- documentation for the estimates and so on, how much each of these things would draw down. And the conclusion of the book is that if we actually did all these things, which of course we're not going to, but if, if we did, we could reverse global warming by 2050, which is something to think about. Yeah. I actually think we will, personally. Yeah. I, I just think we're going to be so, so slow that the mm-hmm. damage will be done. But yeah. that, that sounds very encouraging. So 2050 is sort of your key. 2050. And uh, so... And then the other book, that, which is older, is almost 20 years old, Gunter Pauli's Upsizing. Do you know that book? I should know. Very interesting. Um, he, he wants more jobs, more income, and no pollution. He says there should be no liquid waste, no gaseous waste, and no solid waste. What is waste for one industry is the fuel for the next industry. And if you cluster the industries where you have short distances to take your waste, everybody wins and you have more jobs and less pollution. Uh, Very very interesting book. Now, what my take from this book is a lot of these things are, are, you know, big companies and and so on doing things. But it made me think that it can inform individual people what they personally can do. I mean, it talks about Electricity. Well, we can all try to save some electricity. Talks about water. Takes electricity to move the water around. We can all try to reduce our water use a little, and so on. And not everybody can afford to put um, a solar power station on their roof. Uh, But probably most people could afford to paint their roof white for reflection. There, there are a lot of things we all can do. I would add to that, though. This is one of the things David McKay says a great deal. We often say every little bit will help. I almost have become a bit negative towards that, only from the standpoint that every little bit does help a little bit, but we keep avoiding doing the big things, like our whole energy infrastructure. We did, it's funny, it was just today it hit me as I was preparing for this. Like We had a revolution in this country. We broke away from the British. We did it because taxes were a bit high, a few, you know, some other issues too, but a few percent taxes. There's no seems to be desire for revolution here. There's no burning desire. And yet, I would say this is a much bigger issue than what the British were doing to us. Yeah. Um, yet we're going to do to future generations. We're going to radically change their climate. And we're, some countries we're actually going to eliminate off the map. Some of those very low-lying countries know they're going to be eliminated. And, and then there's transportation. Now, not everyone can afford an electric vehicle, but probably everyone can afford to walk a little more or bicycle a little more. And we can. I just say, I'm, so, I'm based here. Right, and I think it's important to talk with people and say what you are doing and, and what are you doing to... to, to I'm totally, I'm, I am with you. I just want a revolution. That's actually what I... <laughs> or make me dictator. I mean, either but one, these, either these one are, you know. They're these both are both interesting books. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
I like your analysis very much, and I, I think that, you know the interconnected grid is is uh, is supremely important for all of this. Um, I was wondering, you know, I mean, you're, you're concentrated obviously on, on what we can do in, in this country in, right. in terms of interconnection and, and, and wind and, and solar and so forth. Um, North America is a big continent, but it's it's by f- it's much smaller than um, either Africa or Asia, yeah. um, and and even Europe is um, you know has a lot of difference you know from top to bottom. There's um, there, there are yeah okay this is, right. this is <laughs> yes right there's uh, there's lots of possibilities all over the world for for both solar and wind, um, but but again you need to connect. Africa yeah. to Europe, you need to connect, um, you know, yes. uh, cold parts of Asia to warm parts of Asia, or windy parts of Asia yeah. to to very populated parts of Asia. Right, and that um, depends on peace. There's so many things behind. Yes, right. And mm-hmm. the Europeans are doing that a lot more. This yeah. this graph was David McKay's because his end solution for for the UK. David McKay basically concluded, I don't think you guys are up for this. There's no way you're going to be willing to do all it took to get off fossil fuels. You're going to have to go nuclear, or you're going to have to go import. And so this is his graph saying import. The little red dot is what. Uh, the UK would need to power itself if it went pure solar in the deserts of Africa. And the yellow is what it would take a billion people. What would it take to uh, provide the energy needs of a billion people on um, the solar where you heat solar mirrors, the concentrated solar? So at the European energy levels of 125 kilowatt hours per person. And then the same billion people at European energy usage levels. He picked Texas, not me. <laughs> So, well, thank you, Galen. Yeah, I'm just curious if you know offhand what the uh, efficiency is of storing electricity by pumping water. Uh, roughly. I th- yeah, Stephen Chu just said that to talk about last night. Um, the pumped, it was over 90%, I thought. You know, 85% of these, what he said. It was 85 to 90% is the. Full, that was it. He, he showed an example of um, Chile, and Chile has giant cliffs. And he was saying that the Chilean system where they made, they're actually taking salt water and pumping it into high areas, so purely designed for storage. They didn't already have dams uh, in the lakes, um, and they, he quoted 85% in that context. All right. Um, let's thank Steve for a great talk. Great. Thank you.